You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm afraid I have some bad news for you, Wade. Given the movie that we are going to be reviewing on the show this week, I thought it was only appropriate that from now on I communicate only through song. And mm. I know what my singing sounds like, so I'm I'm sorry wow. for you. Well, I, I, I got to tell you, I have another revelation for you. I'm only going to be speaking through a wooden puppet today. See, it's at times like these when I wish that we actually recorded in the same room because I would 100% love to record an entire episode with you communicating only through a wooden puppet. Is it uh, one of those evil puppets or is it a morally neutral puppet? I mean, here's the thing. It's at times moral, kind of like this Jekyll and Hyde situation, and, and then other times just immoral tearing everything out ripping up cushions breaking <laughs> windows it, it's 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 a wild experience oh man now i'm even more disappointed listeners there are a lot of fireworks on this week's episode not least of which is the new film from leos carax annette an unconventional rock opera starring adam driver yes listeners plus we have our weekly recommendations on this episode episode 303 of seeing and believing. We love each other so much. We Love each other so much. We're scoffing at logic. This wasn't the plan. We love each other so much. We love each other. Yes, listeners, it is episode 303 of Seeing and Believing. If you thought that introduction was weird, just wait till you hear our discussion on Leos Karox's new movie, Annette. Kevin, it might get a little bizarre. It's, you know, if if you're familiar with Leos Karox's previous work, especially uh, Holy Motors, which was his film before this one, then you're pretty much prepared for anything. Although I hear that you mm. actually, you went into this, this was like your maiden voyage with Karox. So I'm really curious to know what you <laughs> what you made of Annette here. Yeah, we'll get we'll get into it a little bit later, but I I didn't know anything about the plot. I knew that Adam Driver was in it, that uh Marion Coutier was in it, that it was a musical. Hadn't seen a trailer at all, so I was shook, Kevin, for a little while. I'm just going to be honest, but we'll get into we'll get into that later. Listeners, we want to speak for just a moment about our Patreon campaign. I got to say a big thanks 
to all the listeners who support us. You do such a fantastic job, and it really, I don't know, it makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. We got a number of different donation levels. One of those is the what can you buy for $5 level. It really is fantastic. And Kevin, it just, it begs the question, what could someone hypothetically buy for five bucks? Well, this is a product that you can actually get in on yourself here, Wade, because for $5, you could buy yourself some sanctification wood polish. So if, for example, you happen to have a morally ambiguous uh, ventriloquist dummy lying around the house and you really kind of want to give him a little bit of a boost in the morality department, just you know, rub some of this on him there to give the wood an extra shine and also maybe give his conscience a little bit of an extra shine as well. Wow. I mean, that's that's what we call in the business a deal, Kevin, for only <laughs> five bucks. I don't yeah, know how, it's, uh, how, steel. how can people make money with that? I, I mean, you, maybe the the target market is a lot more, uh, a lot larger than you would expect. I don't personally own a morally ambiguous ventriloquist dummy, but I mean, you do. So maybe there's lots uh-huh. of people who I'd be surprised have one of those Ugh. in their attic somewhere. Yeah, now that's true. The key to profit margin is in volume. You have to sell a lot. Um, but I'm I'm not just I'm not just a customer. I'm a proud supporter myself. So we'll see how that goes. Listeners, once again, thanks so much. If you sign up for a Patreon campaign, you get a number of different perks. And like I said before, you just make us feel so warm and fuzzy inside. Go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast a little bit later on in the show we're going to get to our weekly recommendations but for now we jump into our review of leos Carux's new movie annette here's the movie's official synopsis henry played by adam driver is a stand-up comedian with a fierce sense of humor who falls in love with anne played by marion coutillard a world-renowned opera singer Under the spotlight, they form a passionate and glamorous couple. With the birth of their first child, a mysterious little girl with an exceptional destiny, their lives are turned upside down. Kevin, the plot sounds conventional. The movie is anything but that. We talked a second ago about Karuxa's previous movie, Holy Motors, and I tip my hand. I have not seen any of his films, so I'm being baptized in this. But from what I do understand, you have seen Holy Motors. You were a little bit more prepared. How did you come into the movie feeling? What did you expect to see whenever you turned on Annette? Okay, well, considering that Holy Motors has an extended sequence where uh, the the main actor is playing essentially a psychotic leprechaun who kidnaps Ava Mendez from a graveyard and then takes her to an underground cavern where he eats her hair. I was pretty prepared for this to get wild from from the word go. And, you know, it doesn't get as wild as that, 
Uh, and, and believe me, that's just one sequence out of Holy Motors. So there's lots more where that came from. But I was definitely prepared for Leus Carax to not color within the lines when it comes to movie musicals, or I guess maybe it would be more appropriate to call this one a rock opera because it's not just, you know, scenes interspersed with songs. It's pretty much music wall to wall, um, where the actors are singing almost the entire time. Um, so, but you know, there, there are certain things that you might expect out of the description, a rock opera movie musical. And this movie really zigs where you would expect that kind of movie to zag. And I think that, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, 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 the overview of this film. There's a lot to talk about here, though. I'm really curious before we get any further, though, I want to know what it was like for you being thrown into the deep end with, with this kind of, uh, sensibility, not knowing necessarily what to expect. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was just, it, it's a, it's a unique experience. I mean, I think that's the the best way to describe it. And I think when you say rock opera, you certainly have connotations for that. It's much weirder than your traditional rock opera. It's a very strange film. And we spoke about the baby in the movie, Annette, with certain abilities. And we do need to state off the bat that that baby is actually a play, I guess you could say played by a wooden puppet. So things get a little buck wild in this film. And I was, I was thinking about the movie, Kevin, and I, I finished watching it. And I, I thought to myself, I haven't, I haven't really checked in on the reviews, which I think I probably should have because that added to the shock of just this entire experience. But I was thinking, I said, I bet there are, there are film critics um, that I love and I trust who probably gave this like five stars, four and a half stars. There are also film tri- critics that I love and trust who probably gave this, I don't know, two stars. It's just that type of film. As for general audiences, I, I don't know if, if general audiences are going to find much mileage here. I don't know if the director even wants them to or even cares about that. Uh, so it, it'll probably be a polarizing movie. Overall, I'm not a huge fan of the film. I think there's a lot to talk about. And I'm glad I'm talking to you, Kevin, because there's also a lot that I don't quite understand. And hopefully you'll help me to understand what I don't know. Well, you know, I, I'm i sadly kind of in the same boat as you when it comes to the the overall verdict on this film. I, I think there are some, there's certainly some high points to this to this picture, especially the the very beginning and the very end, I think are far and away the the strongest points. Um, and there are there are individual moments scattered throughout that I really uh, really appreciated. And you know, like I I mentioned already, this is this is a director who who really swings for the fences and has a very unique sensibility. And I'm always happy to see filmmakers like him kind of have a chance to really let loose and make a film pretty much on their own terms. Um, But I am like you in that I don't think that with this particular film, it all ends up really cohering into something that that fully works. And uh, I was trying to work out exactly why. And I think it's less to do with the directing. I think it 
has to do with the uh, the opera, the the rock opera side of the rock opera film equation. Um, I actually am uh, a fan of the of the people behind the the music as well. The uh, the band Sparks, which is you know Ron and Russell Mayall, they're uh, the subjects of Edgar Wright's documentary, The Sparks Brothers. They're you know kind of this rock band they've been around forever since you know the time of the Beatles and watching that documentary from Edgar Wright I really came to like them a lot and and investigated their music for myself a little bit deeper once I came out of that and so I was interested to see what they did with a rock opera I was I was curious to see that kind of musical sensibility grafted onto something much more grandiose and large scale and you know, I have to sadly say that I think the the weak link in this film is the music and that ends up being kind of a fatal flaw in a a movie that you know a rock opera where you kind of you live or die on the music really being able to to move you or to to uh really get stuck in your head there's not really a whole lot here that really stuck with me which i just i it, it's just a disappointment i guess to have such such unique artists, both on the songwriting, on the musical side of things and the filmmaking side of things. And yet the product of their partnership is just something that I don't really, I I don't think really comes together in the end. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is not a soundtrack that you're going to turn on and listen to. And I I thought about something like La La Land or Singing in the Rain. Those are songs that I just enjoy apart from the movies themselves. They're good songs. Here, I had trouble figuring out if Karax is skewing the rock opera musical, if he's making fun of it for laughs, if he genuinely believes in this format, if if he's taking these characters and giving them poor songs to say something about these characters. I I couldn't quite get it, but at the emotional center of this movie is a song sung by the characters where they basically say, we love each other so much. And it's kind of funny to listen to them sing this song because it's devoid of any type of depth. And I, I guess what, what the director is saying is that's kind of that's their relationship. They say the right words. They're very passionate with each other, but there's really no depth there. But then you run into the problem of, well, that song becomes the emotional chord of the movie and it reappears later. And so it I, yeah, I just I don't I don't know how to take it because it's not a great song, but is it on purpose? Is it on accident? There's, there's just kind of a lot happening with this, and and maybe and probably for the people who like this film a lot, see something like that and they see the genius within it. I think for me, as I'm listening to some of these songs, I'm not really catching their vibe, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I I, I think the. This film is definitely going for hard-on-sleeve sincerity. I, I just don't know that it can really be read any other way. Um, that you know, there there are certain kind of 
little stylistic flourishes that Karak's puts into this film, uh, where it is kind of, you know, maybe not taking itself 100% seriously, but I don't think he, he's trying to be ironical about it or to, or to skewer the conventions of, of the genre or anything, both because of what he said in interviews. Like he, he's very much said, like, I don't, I didn't want to make something that was, you know, maintaining ironic distance. That's not what I was trying to do. And I think just reading the film, it really seems to be going for something a little bit like, I don't know, the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, where, you know, there's that heart-stopping number in that, you know, I will wait for you, where, you know, there are these two lovers, they're just singing their their emotions directly to each other. And, you know, the the music itself is, you know, it's not like a, a super intricate song. It's a beautiful song, but it's not complicated. And that film really that that lack of complexity is kind of beside the point the point is to really sweep the audience up in this emotion and kind of let that carry the film rather than you know lengthy dialogue scenes where the characters are are deeply developed or where we're kind of you know trying to uh hack our way through the this really intricate songwriting that's not really the point and i think with annette something similar is going on where you know that song that you mentioned where uh driver and kotiar's characters are singing we love each other so much like just laying it out there i think it's going for something similar i think the problem is the songwriting's just not that not there it's not it's not all that interesting of of a tune We're, it's it's difficult to really by the the emotion under underlying it just because we haven't really spent a whole lot of time with these characters the you know we've only spent a, a few minutes with the, up to that point with Kotiar's character and with Driver's character all we've really seen of him is doing kind of this Lenny Bruce style you know very confrontational stand-up routine where he's clearly playing a role to uh to an audience and he's not really being quote unquote himself and so it just seems like it's it's a little bit of a miscalculation both in the songwriting and also just the relationship that the audience has built with these characters up to that point just it just isn't there and so the movie's almost trying to lean it's almost as if it's trying to lean against a wall and the wall isn't there and it's just going to fall all over itself and sadly i think that's kind of what happens Hmm. no and I, i think that's a good way to explain it and you mentioned something about the characters and their chemistry and us not really knowing them except for this extended comedic act with adam driver's character and i found it a bit strange because we we get this long section of the film where we're just we're just kind of watching him do his deal. And I'll talk about that too in a moment what that means. And then we go to uh, Kotiar and her character and she's performing an opera and we just get these small I don't know these small clips of it. It's it's kind of strange that we don't see her character at the opera performing. So it feels very it just feels very underdeveloped and a little bit strange. And and then going back to the question of of sincerity for this film. It, it's interesting because Adam Driver his name is Henry McHenry, right? He's just this like typical 
male name. It's obviously uh, kind of a joke, Henry McHenry. And then we we see him perform, and it's it's fascinating because what he's saying is not funny, and yet the movie is taking a laugh at this bombastic comedy that's really only humorous if you know the character and you're possibly there in the audience. So I I I I feel like I'm kind of bouncing back and forth between how the film makes or wants to make me feel. Does it want me to really kind of invest in these characters or is it really just kind of this big joke? And perhaps, Kevin, perhaps that's that's part of the problem with with the movie. I just I can't get a grasp on it and, and maybe there other, there will be other people who can and that's why it works for them but for me it just it just doesn't it just doesn't slide together like I feel like it should. Yeah, I mean part part of that might be the the um the whole uh kind of creative personality of Sparks. Uh you know, the the Ron and Russell Mayo like they they were very deeply involved with this film. This was actually kind of a project that they conceived of first, and Carox came in uh, came in on later. Um, so the in terms of just the the way the story is has been shaped, um, Carox had some role in it, but a lot of it is just kind of the the off kilter vibe that Sparks brings to to a lot of their creative endeavors. And so, you know, maybe if you're not dialed into Sparks as a creative entity, then it's a little bit harder to kind of pin down the the weird limbo that they inhabit between sincerity and kind of this this winking distance. Um or or and and not so much that those two things are are diametrically opposed for them. It's more like they try to mix those together those two things together in their music in a way where it's kind of both at the same time. And I think maybe that works better with their albums, but less good when they're kind of presenting a narrative that really relies on the audience buying in 100%. And I just, I don't think that the, uh, the, the story as written or Crox's uh, presentation of it really, succeeds in doing that like i mean obviously as as you're observing it's just it feels like it wants to keep you at a distance but it also kind of seems like it wants to be this this very simple very um very elevated melodramatic operatic story and those two things it's almost like Carax hasn't really worked out how to make those two things coexist which is a shame because like i said there are some individual moments sprinkled throughout that are that do work really well just as you know as flashes of cinema or or as really interesting thematic threads that maybe don't pay off but are interesting in the moment mm-hmm. yeah like there there are a number of shots that i think are wonderful one where the two characters are they're singing that song about loving each other so much and they're riding in a motorcycle and the camera's kind of tight on them and then cuts back and they drive off in the distance it's it's at night and yeah there are a number of a number of images that that stick with me from this film i, I also think how do i say this i also think sometimes when you get a movie like this where the story is a little bit difficult to follow it's a little strange and a little bizarre 
some of the small details or the symbols that really kind of help you track the meaning of the movie can be almost overwhelming at times. So you're watching this, uh, you'll notice that that Adam Driver's character has this big kind of scar across his cheek. Obviously, it it means something. The daughter is a wooden puppet. Okay, I think like that's supposed to be a metaphor in a way for something. You have all these tiny details throughout the movie and it it just feels almost over the top and maybe I'm not the intended audience but a lot of that just became I I, I started to roll my eyes at times uh, with with each new layer to it so I, I I do think I don't know it feel it feel it feels a little much and that's maybe just a personal thing, but but that's it. I, I, at the end of the movie, though, I, I laughed a lot more than I did uh, at the beginning and in the middle. Um, so I think the end was was quite better. I, I think that kind of is pointing towards the larger problem. The fact that, you know, it, it seems a little much uh, to you and it seems a little bit much to me. There are just points where you I, I, I felt myself kind of desiring to to be charitable to the film because it it does really it it wants to be essentially an opera i mean if you if you've ever you know like seen seen an opera live like you know a lot of operas the story isn't all that complex you think of something like la boheme where a lot of the the story is really kind of it's mostly you know um the the character's in and kind of an attic room singing to each other or they're they're kind of at this christmas feast and they're kind of singing about that and it doesn't really have a whole lot in terms of a narrative like there's there's a narrative but it's very simple there are very few plot points and it's much more about the music and the uh the performances the the scene setting and and the way that those interact to make you invest emotionally in something that if it were presented just as a straightforward prose narrative you wouldn't invest in so much that's kind of the what opera does in a, in a nutshell and i think this is this film is trying to do something similar but it doesn't succeed a lot of it falls flat so the so that when you do kind of get these big grand gestures you're still because you haven't been been won over to it instead of feeling like an appropriate flourish in this operatic story you kind of feel like okay that's maybe not it's a little it's a little much to use your turn of phrase and there's not really a whole lot that can be done about that um when you know once the audience has kind of been lost it's really hard to make the audience buy back in and i think that 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 happens with this film where I, as I, as I was watching it, you know, I, I was seeing what was going on. I was like, I really like this scene, man. I wish that I was more invested in, in these characters and in kind of this internal conflict than I am, because it would be working a lot better for me now if, you know, the, the music had really swept me up a little bit, but because so much of it, it, it's kind of, a lot of it is recitative. There's not a whole lot of um, musical variation. A lot of the singing is simply just kind of 
reciting um, plot points or motivations to each other. And uh, the the male brothers never really... There, there are very few times in this film, I guess, where we are kind of caught up into a song and the song kind of persists for more than a minute. Most of these uh, pieces of music kind of go for about 60 seconds and then we're on to the next scene. And that just... It, it's death for, for the pacing where you really want to... You want to be won over by the music, but the music just isn't there, or it's almost seems like it's purposely, perversely keeping mm-hmm. you at arm's length. No, no, I, I think that's I think that's a great way to put it. I, I want to talk for a moment about some of the themes in the movie and what this film is is trying to say or portray. And I think for me, it kind of focuses on Adam Driver's character, his comedic persona is the ape of god or at least that's what his his show is and he is as we mentioned bombastic his jokes are strange he plays a character who is prideful uh jealous and in in the film too we also see him as this abusive individual and it's all kind of fun and games for the people. And yet that character has bled over into his life. And that's the way he treats the people around him. And eventually the film implies that information about this character gets out. He does a show and it's suddenly not funny anymore. His, his, his whole bit is not funny. And so it speaks to the way that comedy changes. It also speaks to the way that art and life bleed together. And it it seems like that's perhaps a theme here. The What is the difference between art and life? Is there even a difference between art and life? And how our perceptions about people will change based on what we, we know about them. And so I... I was I was thinking through through some of that. Like I said, when we get to the end, I'm not really sure exactly what all that means, but that seems to be uh, some of the core ideas here: art, fame, pride, masculinity. If I had to kind of boil it down to a few. So so first of all, I'm I'm glad that we that we're getting more into Driver's character because I do think for you know all the films disappointments, I think that Driver gives a very good performance here. Um, the, the final scene that I mentioned, uh, earlier is, is a utter heartbreaker. And a lot of that is, is down to, uh, driver's performance here as, as Henry. And he really, he commits to everything, you know, every, everything that the music and the, the script, the script ask him to do, like he commits to 100%. And it comes as close to working as this, as this film ever does when he, when he's on camera, um, I like, I, I found his character fascinating to think about too. The, the ape of God is such a evocative, uh, name for his, his one man show that we see a couple of times at the beginning of the film, because it, it really kind of suggests the, this, this relationship. It, it, I don't know. I, I thought of him a lot as almost like the as Adam immediately post fall, where he has really does you know, he desires greatness 
And yet there's just this extreme shame and even self-loathing bound up in his character too that drives him both to, to pride. Like he 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 almost it's almost like he projects this prideful persona in order to kind of escape from his own his own shame over his appearance, over his inability to to be kind of a, a sunnier person. Um that that's all it's it's all really interesting and i think we really kind of get this picture in in henry of a man who's at war with himself who who loves his wife even as he kind of resents her for being so beautiful and so talented whereas he's kind of neither of those things and uh that just it builds up to this 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 client this emotional climax i guess i guess with annette his daughter where um he kind of realizes how much that kind of uh uh inner conflict and and pride and selfishness has taken so much from him and it's it really speaks to the way that a lot of sin you know comes into a person's life and just sort of poisons the whole thing with them almost seeming like powerless to stop it even as they're fully aware of what they're doing and i I don't know i found that really compelling to think about and i really wish that um the kind of care that had been lavished on the both the music and the character writing in that final sequence had kind of been sprinkled throughout the picture i think it would have resulted in probably a much stronger film yeah no i agree and I think, I say I think, where the child comes in is the child is this uh, metaphor or maybe just a representation of how what we do trickles down into our into the lives of our kids. Whether they inherit our traits or not, they inherit the repercussions of those traits and those mistakes. And they oftentimes suffer uh, for that. And so when we see the puppet, the puppet is perhaps a stab or a look at the lack of agency maybe that children have, how they're just, they're there and they, they have to abide by the whims of their parents until they gain independence. And that all kind of flows together and so I, I think some of those ideas are, are floating around, but it we don't really get I, I don't really feel much depth from this story, like you said, until that final uh, sequence. And uh, that that final scene is 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 pretty good. I, I think it's really good. I also like the scene where the puppet is flown into a halftime show with a bunch of drones. That was pretty f- <laughs> funny, Kevin. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I I think the the conceit of the of the wooden puppet is one of those touches where it it seems really precious, overly precious at first, and then over the course of the film, I kind of I I came around on it, and I think you're right that it does kind of suggest this this idea of the the fact that Annette is essentially just a thing to her parents that that driver sees her as kind of 
an extension of of her mother and a, some something to to love but also to kind of want to to possess and to use and how uh, Annette's uh, mother, uh, Cotillard's character, sees her as sort of almost a, a, a salvation from the parts of her life that she wishes were were easier or, or or that were less threatening. And I I appreciate that that kind of gets put onto this this marionette who is just utterly incapable of supporting all of it. And the place where the film ends up, not to give too much away, but where this the film ends up with the character of Annette, this this little girl puppet, I think is a very makes that symbol from something that might seem a little bit overly precious to something that's startlingly perceptive about not just the way these characters see this child, but just the way that uh, children themselves can can contain complexities and worlds within themselves that can really just gobsmack you sometimes and i I think it's really beautiful and again it's the sort of thing where i i I wish the film had had more of that um because i think it's it's really well done and it's it's suggestive of karak's talents that he could he could really make it land with such force after like you said a a film that you know after a while you kind of grow cold towards Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well kevin this has inspired me to write a rock opera of our podcast. And I'm not sure if we just if we call it Seeing and Believing or if it has to have a more artsy name. Um, but I've already got the puppet. I mentioned that. So we're halfway there. Yeah, wait, I think that if, if we wanted to give it a title, it would have to be like a one-word title. Maybe nothing but uh, the, the first name of a French woman, like Jeannette mm. or something. That can be the title of <laughs> The rock opera of seeing and believing. <laughs> and at the end, the audience will say, I, I never I never learned who Jeanette was. And that would be a metaphor for something. For something. I don't know what. <laughs> we, we need to... I'll, okay, hold on, Wade. I'm going to buy a plane ticket, fly out there to... Uh, to Houston and we'll we'll sit down in a room with piano and, and you know we'll 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 bang this rock opera out. Oh man. Yes. And our listeners, we would give it to you if you if you are a Patreon supporter, you would get it. You would be the only ones who would get it. <laughs> uh one of our yeah. one of our perks. Listeners, that is our review of Annette. It's currently playing in theaters and streaming exclusively on Amazon Prime. If you've had a chance to see the movie, make sure to let us know your thoughts. You can tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod, or you can email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Kevin, we've reached the end of the episode. It's at this point where we recommend to our listeners something from the world of television and or film. What would you like to recommend to our listeners this week? Uh, well, my recommendation for this week is actually a film that I I have recommended on the recommended on the show in the past. Um, but given the the character that Driver plays in Annette, it just seemed really appropriate to bring up F. W. Murnau's Sunrise again. This is a, a silent film, probably you know, depending on the day on which you catch me, I might call it the best silent film ever made. Um, it's just this wonderful dreamlike story of a a husband who goes from 
resenting his wife and literally wanting to to murder her in order to run off with someone else uh, to a man who uh, is utterly devoted to his wife and never wants to be parted from her ever again. And the fact that this you know movie that's not even an hour and a half long can trace that arc in a way that is not just uh, interesting but believable is really a testament to the the power of cinema to sort of override the the objections of the you know the the disbelief uh, that are that's in in our heads. It's just a really remarkable story. It's it's. It probably because it works as a silent film on kind of this dreamlike level where you accept some things that you might not otherwise. I think it's a it's a beautiful story. I can't remember if I said this when I recommended it on that earlier episode, but if I had to pick one film to show to an alien in order to kind of explain to them what human beings were all about, I would pick Sunrise to show them because I think it really just it doesn't capture realistic human behavior necessarily, but it definitely captures kind of what it feels like to be human. So I think it's a really great film. Check it out. Yeah, no, that is an amazing five-star film. I mean, it is so, it is just so good. And I remember you talking about it. I think it was when we started the podcast about six years ago. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I, I, you know, I should watch this. And it was just gobsmacked at the movie. I mean, it's, it's really... I, it's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Well, you, you kind of give us something, uh, give us something highbrow, Kevin. I was thinking about absurdist humor, and I just had to talk about the second season of a television show I just finished, and that's I think you should leave with Tim Robinson. Now, this Netflix television series is not for everyone. It's not all that clean. There is some material that might make individuals uncomfortable. There's some language. But this sketch comedy show makes me laugh so hard, Kevin. And it's this weird effect where you watch it and you're like, oh, haha, that's funny. And then you think about it and you just you laugh about it all day. I watched the second season and I'll just randomly think of a of a sketch from that television show. And I'll just laugh and laugh and laugh. And my wife, Priscilla, my wife, she hates this show. She thinks it is absolutely horrible. And so she's watched some sketches. She's like, episodes, she's like, I don't like that show. So I will want to repeat the sketches to her because I find them so funny. And she's like, wait, I don't. I don't even like you repeating these to me. They're just not funny. She's like, I don't I don't get it. It's just so weird. And yet it works for me. And so when you meet that person that you can talk about this show with, I'll I'll I talked about it with my brother the other day. I was almost in tears laughing so hard about some of these sketches. They're just sketches. They're just it's hard to it's hard to talk about them. Yeah. So mileage may vary. Some people are gonna love this show. Some people are gonna absolutely hate it. But I think about that show literally all <laughs> of the time, Kevin. Yeah, you know, I think a good a good litmus test for for that show is 
Um, I think it's 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 in its second season. Its second season, I think, just came out on on Netflix. Um, if you if you're kind of curious about, but you're not sure, eh, I'm not sure if it's for me. Just go on to go to the first season, watch the very first sketch of the very first episode, uh, where Tim Robinson uh, is uh, ending a job interview in a coffee shop and makes a very particular kind of exit from that from that job interview if you watch that sketch and you're just like not for me don't like it then you probably can safely leave the the series as a whole uh behind not not th- worry about it if you like that sketch though there's a really good chance that you will be on board for all of the other weird places that tim robinson takes you over the course of the series and he goes to some weird places so i don't know i i'm with you wade i think it's it's pretty funny i've heard some people say that it's one of the quintessential sketch comedy shows of the of the 20s of the 2020s um i don't know if i'd go that far i maybe don't know enough about comedy to really make a pronouncement like that but it does feel of its time in a way that I don't know. It, it, there, there's something to that, I think. It definitely captures a certain brand of humor. And if you look at humor just kind of through the decades, you'll see this kind of shift and it evolves and it changes and it moves. That's why a lot of the stuff our, our parents watch that they find hilarious, we don't we don't find all too funny. Uh, this, this does capture this era, I feel like. What is, quote unquote, on the end? And uh, yeah, I mean, the second season, the first season's great. Second season is, is great. There's this, there's a scene with uh, Paul Walter Hauser. Uh, many people know him from Richard Jewell or like I, Tanya. And he plays a man who is just hanging with his buddies and they're all kind of making fun of their wives and he makes fun of his wives. And then there's this, his wife. And then they, he, it goes back in this like a labyrinth sequence where he it just shows how his wife is really cool and supportive of him and it's just so funny it's so ridiculous and um yeah so enough about that but uh if you are looking for a, a show you should definitely check out the uh i i always get it wrong i think you should leave with tim robinson i, I i'll say you you should probably leave no that's not it i think you should leave with tim robinson so that's my recommendation, Kevin. <laughs> Listeners, we want to thank you for checking out this week's episode. That is the end for us for now. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. Once again, hit us up on Twitter at SeeBeliefPod or email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.